Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep. At the Bend of the Trail by Manly Wade Wellman, first published in Weird Tales, October 1934. It's a short little story set in Africa. We've done uh, one other Manly Wade Wellman story. Uh, that one was called The Frog Father. Really terrific, bayou, swampy sort of story. Um, and this one is uh, set in where Manly Wade Wellman was born, Africa. Uh, what would be now Angola. Um, his dad was a very interesting fellow, married four times, uh, changed his name at one point, ran away with a girl who was totally young to get married. She was 20 years old. I don't understand how this works. Um, moved all over the world, uh, for work and, uh, his son, Manly Wade Wellman, uh, was not quite as, uh, fleet of foot, but he <laughs> got around quite a bit. He had a, his own son who um, also wrote. Uh, I didn't mention his dad was a writer. Um, his he had uh, I think two brothers. Both of them were writers, uh, or maybe one was a a plant uh, biologist, and the other one he had a sister, and she was also a writer. Uh, so it, writing was in the f family, and uh, I found this cool anecdote which I'd like to read. Um, uh, Alfred Bester uh, met Manly Wade Wellman. And uh, this is how he described him. Mort Weisinger introduced me to, an inf uh, to the informal luncheon gatherings of the working science fiction authors of the late 30s. The vivacious compare of those luncheons was manly, spelled wrong, Wade Wellman, a professional southerner full of regional anecdotes. It's my recollection that one of his hands was slightly shriveled which may have been why he came on so strong for the Confederate cause. <laughs> exactly. We were all very patient with that. After all, our side had won the war. Wellman was quite the man of the world for the innocent 30s. He always ordered wine with his lunch. <laughs> I think Albert Bester's having some fun with uh, the memory of uh, Manly Wade Wellman. Um, he was kind of a cosmopolitan guy himself. Um, but uh, Manly Wade Wellman, uh, he, he had quite a career in comics, in, in pulps, and um, he draws on many resources. I just recently watched a movie of his, well, a movie based on two short stories of his, um, and it was, uh, it was pretty interesting. It was very low budget, um, almost a musical. <laughs> What's it called? Um... It has a couple of names. One of them is, um, uh, I want to say, The Ballad of Hillbilly John. Um, it, it's based on his Silver John character, or um, John the Balladeer character, who he wrote quite a few stories about. The first two uh, stories were published in FNSF, and they were um, what the movie was composed of. One is uh, Old Ugly Bird, and the other was something else. But, uh, oh. The Desric of, ya of Yandro, which <laughs> sounds like it's set on another planet. Yandro is a guy and also a mountain, maybe. And a Desric is like a, a shack. <laughs> so it's, it's actually like a, a sort of contemporary fantasy story 
about the weird goings on in Appalachia. Um, so a very interesting fellow, Manly Wade Wellman. Um, and this story I think is, um, interesting, but I'd like you to read it to us before we, uh, discuss it. Would you mind? I would be delighted. Thank you. At the bend of the trail. They stood at the bend of the trail, young Bruce Armstrong and white-haired Hubert Whaley, conversing while their black bearers raised their tent and built a cooking fire. The sun was low on the African horizon, and they whiled away the minutes before supper by conversation. As I was saying, Whaley told his young friend, the natives invest every unusual object, rock, hill, or whatnot, with a supernatural personality and give it a wide berth. Look at this sharp curve in the trail. For years, they have been dodging out to one side just to avoid that route. He pointed to a strange growth in the lush grass. It was long and crooked, lying in the shape of a letter S. If straight, it might have been 10 feet long, and it tapered from the size of a man's ankle at one point there where it sprouted from the ground to a whiplash tip. It might have been the root of a tree, but there was no stem within yards to which it might attach. Rum thing looks as if a tree must be growing upside down, commented Armstrong. Branches in the ground, root in the air. What? A chap could write books and books about uncatalogued plants in these parts, and you say the boys won't touch it? Not one of them, replied Whaley. Can't say that I blame them. It looks uncanny enough. What utter rot, cried the younger man. Come now, Whaley. Do you mean to say you give a minute serious thought to their superstitions? I mean to say that Africa's full of strange beings and doings, was Whaley's sober response. When you've been here as long as I have, I'm turning missionary this moment, cut in Armstrong. I don't begrudge the blacks their ideas, but when a good friend and Englishman gets a touch of their religion, I have to do something about it. Hey, you Johnnies, he cried to the bearers on the other side of the curved trail. Tumble over here. Tell them, Whaley, I don't speak their lingo yet. At Whaley's call, a score of plum-colored men gathered, eyeing the whites with respectful interest. Look here, you chaps, said Armstrong. What's all this about roots and spirits and such like? It's a lot of foolishness, you know. Pass that on to him, Whaley, will you? When Whaley had translated, the headman replied that their tribal beliefs had been taught them by wise old men who must have known the truth. Rot, cried Armstrong when Whaley had rendered this into English. Rot, I say, and I'll prove it. You're afraid to touch this root, are you? He stepped close and set his boot heel on the growth. Well, then, suppose I show you that it's perfectly harmless. A cry of alarm went up from the bearers, a cry echoed by Whaley. Look out, Armstrong, look out, man, it's moving. The free tip of the root was swaying to and fro like the head of a blind worm. Even as Armstrong stared in chilled amazement, it writhed up from the ground and curled back toward his foot. With a startled exclamation, he jumped away. The root tip sank quickly down and lay motionless again. Whaley and Armstrong looked at each other, at the root and at the retreating bearers. I call it odd, said Armstrong after a moment, in a voice that quivered ever so slightly. Something to tell about back home. What? Best leave it alone, old man, counseled Whaley. Suppose we see what's for supper. 
They ate in the gathering gloom, ate silently. In silence, they smoked their pipes. The usual singing and laughing of the bearers was subdued also. Whaley noticed Armstrong's nervous fidgeting, wondered what to say, and uh, said nothing. A dry rustle in the grass attracted their attention. What's that? demanded Armstrong sharply. A snake? Let's have a look-see, suggested Whaley. Taking the lantern from the tent pole, dashed unpleasant things, snakes, bring along the gun, it might be a big one. But they found no snake, and the bearers, called to help look, said that there were few snakes in this part of the country. Finally, the two whites returned to the fire to resume their smoking. Armstrong muttered, twitched, and finally broke the silence. It's all nonsense, I say it once for all. What's all nonsense? What do you mean, asked Whaley, though he knew well enough. This beastly root business, it gets on my nerves. I can't forget it. When it writhed under my foot, my flesh crept. Don't try to worry it out, Will, he said. You'll only go batty trying to explain it. At that, Armstrong jumped up, reached into the toolbox just inside the tent, and grabbed a hand axe. With this, he strode away toward the trail. Don't be a silly ass, man, cried Whaley, following him. What are you going to do? Going to cut that damn root out, flung back Armstrong. I've bothered about it quite enough. I shan't sleep tonight, not while the thing's there. It's just on your nerves, Armstrong, said Whaley. I tell you, it's nothing, just a funny-looking plant that rustled when you kicked it. What's this? They'd come into the bend of the trail. The last rays of light showed them that there was no root there, no growing thing larger than a blade of grass, not even a hole to show where it might have been. The axe drooped in Armstrong's hand. The two stared at each other as the night rode down. Woods scarce hereabouts, said Whaley in a low voice. Perhaps the boys cut it up and used it for a fire. Armstrong shook his head. No, Whaley. You said yourself, and so did they, that it was a thing not to be touched. They walked back to their camp. The brightness of the lantern shed a little comfort on them as they again sat in the silence. Bed, suggested Whaley at last, and they entered the tent. Now forget you're a topping fellow, Whaley, but I don't need babying, said Armstrong, sitting on his cot to pull off his boots. Of course not. Go to sleep now, there's a good chap, and don't dream of roots. Dash it all, who's going to dream about him? said Armstrong as they put out the light and lay down. Silence yet again, and after a minute or two, Whaley could hear Armstrong's deep, regular breathing. The young man was asleep, probably had dismissed the queer adventure of the evening as a trifle, but Whaley, as he himself had said, had lived too long in Africa to banish all strange things so lightly from his mind. He pondered long before he, too, dozed off. He woke suddenly with a wild shriek splitting his ears, the shriek of a man in mortal terror. He sprang out of bed, shaking the sleep from his eyes. Moonbeams came through the half-open flap, showing Armstrong struggling on the ground between the cots. He was fighting somebody or, or something. Whaley could not see. His antagonist, the, the older man, dropped to his knees, reached out to help. His hands fell on a quivering band that circled Armstrong's chest. 
He recoiled from it with a cry. He had touched wood, wood that moved and lived like flesh. Whaley, the thing, it's choking me, gasped Armstrong in a rattling voice. It has a spirit. It's it's after revenge. He writhed along the ground and half out of the tent then collapsed. In the light from the moon, Whaley saw a sight that stirred his white hair. A writhing cable-like thing was grappling with Armstrong. It had wound twice around his body and arms, and the two loose ends were lashing to and fro like flails. Whaley flung himself forward again. One of the flailing ends fell on his head, knocking him back into the tent. He went sprawling, half stunned and almost out of the fight. His hand fell upon the open toolbox. A single grab found the handle of the axe that Armstrong had picked up earlier in the evening. The feel of the weapon seemed to restore Whaley's strength. Once more, he charged into the battle. Armstrong barely quivered now. Only the nameless attacker moved. Whaley put out his hand and clutched the larger coil that crushed his friend's chest, sinking his nails into the coarse splintery skin that coated it he dragged it a little free of its hold and struck with the axe the blade sank deeply into the tough tissue he wrenched the axe free and the moonlight fell upon the gash as white as fresh cut pine the floundering coils churned with new hostile energy loosening their hold on the fallen armstrong whaley dragged at them and they leaped and twisted in his hand like a flooded fire hose the smaller end glided across the ground and whipped around Whaley's ankle, climbed it in a spiral. Another loop snapped on his wrist like a half hitch, almost breaking it. He grunted at the crushing agony, but with a supreme effort, drew a length almost taut between arm and leg. With all the strength of his right arm, he drove the axe. He felt the steel edge bite deep. The grip on wrist and ankle relaxed, and he freed himself with a sudden struggle. The two sundered halves of the thing flopped and twisted on the ground like the pieces of a gigantic severed worm. Whaley's mind whirled, and he yearned to let himself drop and swoon, but he lifted the axe and struck again, and yet again. His chest panted, his brow streamed sweat, but he dropped and chopped until only pulsating fragments lay around him. He dashed them all into the half-dead fire, which blazed quickly over this new food. Then, for the first time, he realized that the native bearers were gathered, watching in frozen horror. He looked at them, then at the silent form of his partner. He knelt and passed his hands over the still body. Broken arm, three cracked ribs, he said aloud. Not bad for an evil spirit, he called to the headman. Build up the fire, heat water, bring a bottle of brandy. You other boys, carry him into the tent. Lord, what a country. <laughs> um. So, uh, one, I mentioned uh, Manly Wade Wellman's dad. Uh, the reason Manly Wade Wellman was born in, in uh, Africa was um, because his dad was working for some British missionaries as a doctor. Um, and he was like the official medical attache, I guess, for these missionaries. Um, and one of the things, uh, reportedly, uh, that was a scandal was that uh, he had gone native. And um, <laughs> this is a, a phrase, right? Went native, gone native. And uh, we've got two white explorers here in this African... Uh, uh, it says jungle in the opening thing, but it's, it doesn't sound like much of a jungle. It sounds more like a savanna. 
because um, there's not a lot of wood around, right? <laughs> right. In any case, um, in this African uh, wilderness, uh, we've got a two guys, one Whaley and one Armstrong. Armstrong's the young man uh, who doesn't speak the lingo, quote-unquote, and then there's Whaley, who is the experienced man who does speak the lingo, quote-unquote, and also uh, has white hair. Um, one of the things the natives say <laughs> in this, uh, to, to explain through translation, uh, is when Whaley had translated, the headmen replied that their tribal beliefs had been, quote, taught, by, uh, taught them by wise old men who must have known the truth. <laughs> um, and so uh, we get the sense that Whaley uh, is a little more hesitant um, to tread on the superstitious um, things and he's actually the guy who explains um, as they pre prior to the story's beginning must have been trying to explain to uh, Armstrong he says as I was saying <laughs> the natives invest every unusual object rock, hill or whatnot, with supernatural personality and give it a wide berth um, so uh, essentially it's animism right mm. and and uh, what's nice about this is this is actually a story I always try and read when I find them I love plant monster stories <laughs> <laughs> one of the very first uh, podcasts we did on this podcast was on a HG Wells story called uh, Flowering of Strange Orchid which is about uh a man in England who, after having purchased a, a strange orchid, uh, tends to it and is attacked by it. <laughs> um, right. I think that a vampire orchid. Yeah, a vampire orchid. Yeah, it literally sucks his blood. Um, here, uh, I don't know what the motivation or biology of this plant monster is, except it's it's stated as revenge. <laughs> um, for stepping on it, presumably. Exactly. Um, so I, I, I gotta think that plant monster stories are not just another monster. Like, you could have a rock monster story, right? You could have a sea monster story. Like, literally, water monster story. Um, and people do that. But I think plant monsters are a little bit different from rock monsters or water monsters. And I think that it has to do with the strange relationship we have with plants, uh, where we think we are their masters, and yet uh, the, we are also their servants in in some respects. So, what do you what do you think about that? Um, I grew up in in New York, um, but I spent eleven summers. Uh, in a quite uh, rural part of the Hudson Valley. Mm -hmm. uh, our house had woods on three sides of it. Now we're on the side of a mountain. So I, I grew up both in the land of concrete and the land of, of plants. I have always found an enormous difference between my grandparents, it was their home, my grandparents' lawn, and the forest that I clambered through when I would go for an afternoon's entertainment and climb the mountain. Mm -hmm. uh, trees are big. 
They are. They make you tremble. The first time I went to Muir Woods, which is uh, a national monument of sequoias uh, north of San Francisco, it happened that it was a December day and I was alone. It's my good luck because it's a very popular place. It was like walking into a cathedral. Mm-hmm. I was awestruck. These things are enormous. But since then, I have also, from time to time, had the occasion to walk through a bamboo forest. I mean, it's grass. Yeah. How can it be grass? It's grass that can kill you. If you Indeed. If you, you know, get get at it the wrong way. Indeed. And so I think one of the things about the vegetable world is it's so slow. It appears mm. to be immobile. Mm-hmm. But every now and then you recognize that it is vast. In fast, this vegetable love is vaster than empires and more slow, <laughs> mm-hmm. as Marlowe has it into his coy mistress. And so I think it's easy to understand that had these things but will and animus, yeah. they would be utterly monstrous because they are so anti-human. Mm-hmm. Whether or not we think that we are their masters, we certainly believe that we can live comfortably with them they provide most of the calories that keep us alive yeah but yet you know that little strawberry vine going from one bush to the other has thorns that will really hurt you these things defend themselves and that's what's going on here Mm -hmm. Um, of course uh, i don't believe that we're supposed to think that the the plant here is malevolent as it is in the Wells story. Mm. It's not a vampire. It's just, you know, if you're going to stomp on me, (laughs) I'm going to get back at you. Right. Um, So I think you're right. There is something special about vegetables. The the situation is about uh, teaching the, teaching the lesson of the wisdom of, uh, of the natives without getting killed in in the teaching, right? Mm-hmm. The the lore, right? This is what a word that comes up a lot in the things I read and I teach it to students. I say it's it's knowledge about about mostly things you don't find in books about where you are, what this thing does, how to treat that, um wh- why this is there and who put it there or how how it came to happen. And it's something that you sort of learn by being in a place for a long time. You know, if you, <laughs> we were talking before the podcast about, you know, the fact that I live in a rainforest, right? Um, right. Just because you're an architect and you are you went to school and you did really good in school doesn't mean you understand how to build structures in a rainforest. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, right. You, you need to uh, have had some generations living in that neighborhood to understand that roofs need to be sloped in a certain angle and uh you know how much water can come off and what times of year and what materials to use all of these things are not easily taught in school as a generic thing yeah sure they teach you load bearing and uh what material strength things have and you know design but do they teach you how to do it in every environment? No, they don't. No. 
there, there are a couple of background um, references. Maybe there are, maybe they aren't in this story that I would like to pursue. Um, not just these feelings and this importance of, of, gener- of recognizing lore. Um, let me lay out, I'm not sure that I, I completely believe what I'm about to say as the right interpretation, but mm-hmm. let me lay it out and then right. perhaps we can chew on it. Bruce Armstrong is the younger, mm-hmm. and Hubert Whaley is the older. Mm-hmm. In in truth, they're both supposedly Englishmen, but mm-hmm. it's also true that both of those surnames resonate for me. Oh. Um, this, this story was published in 1934, mm-hmm. and if the younger character had been named Jack Armstrong, there would have been trademark infringement. Mm. But because Jack Armstrong, all-American boy, was a famous popular culture figure who, in fact, uh, began in 1926. And by 1933 and from 1933 until 1951 was um, the the character advertised by Wheaties from General Mills. Uh So Jack Armstrong, all-American boy, I remember hearing that come out of the radio, although I was five when it went off the air. So by 1934, Jack Armstrong, All-American Boy, was something, right? Now, I'm wondering what kind of comment Manly Wade Wellman is making about this younger, less cosmopolitan, American rather than English name. Hubert Whaley is the one who actually frees him who tells him, you know, you really better pay attention to this lore that you were talking about, Jesse. Uh, Hubert Whaley also would have been a name that would run into uh, uh, copyright infringement in this case if it had been Arthur Whaley, spelled W-A-L-E-Y. Arthur Whaley was, at the time, perhaps the most famous translator of Japanese uh, literature. In fact, The Tale of Genji, which is often r- noted as maybe the first novel, was brought into English by Arthur Whaley just, just within the decade before this was written. And we're told that Arthur Whaley's, sorry, Hubert Whaley's role in this story includes serving as translator. Yeah. So I'm thinking... Maybe this is a story about the ugly American. Basically, Manly Wade Wellman, despite all of his perambulations, is a North Carolina author, Mm -hmm. a professional Southerner, according to uh, to uh, which is funny because it's it's adopted, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But he lived most of his life in North Carolina, Mm -hmm. and uh, and wrote in many pulp genres, an educated cosmopolitan man. So there's an undertone going on here. It's not not all that strong, but reading it from the 21st century, when I hear the whites calling the blacks boy and you Johnnies come over here, here. and when it is written that they have a respectful silence as they look at the Mm -hmm. the white men – and then ultimately, in fact, Whaley manages to save um, Armstrong 
Lord, what a country. Lord, what a country. Remember, Armstrong said, I'm going to become a missionary. Right. Because you have gone over to their religion. Lord, what a country, it says at the end. Mm -hmm. So here's here's the the problem with my interpretation. I don't know which way to go, Jesse. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, these people judged from the 21st century, these two white men, are so obviously racist. They're so obviously entitled. They care so little and think so little of the blacks that um, it looks like a story that says, you Englishmen, you know, you deserve what you get. On the other hand, the one Englishman who is at least enough of a subscriber to the local lore is able to save the other Englishman. Mm-hmm. And so by listening to the blacks, the whites remain in power. Yeah, I can't tell whether this is a story that's criticizing racism or applauding enlightened racism. Uh, put it another way, is this Kipling? Mm, yeah. Right? I get it. Who is an advocate for a, 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 empire because, after all, we're bringing them civilization. Yeah. So that's my question. How shall we interpret this story? I think I think you, you've hit on it exactly. Ambivalent is is how we need to feel about it. Um, how they felt about it is ambivalent, too, but they wouldn't say it. <laughs> they wouldn't think it that way. Um, I think a lot of the things that we can read into older stuff is having a greater understanding, in a certain sense, of the thinking that's behind the people at the period they're living in a culture that's very different from ours right racism is still present yes but it is not the dominant form of interaction in the world today in fact what we have here is uh an engagement and this is actually something i think is really important i really like stories where people from one country go to another country in fact, I like going to other countries and experiencing it because you learn a lot. Um, now, I think that this is kind of what Manly Wade Wellman is doing, too. He lived in Africa. He was adopted by uh, the son of one of the uh, people uh, his d- dad treated. He treated uh, some chief for blindness, and he was adopted by the tribe, right? And then he leaves and goes to the United States and goes to university and uh, studies law and then becomes a cartoon uh, writer and a pulp fiction writer. And he meets Alfred Bester himself, who was a travel writer, right? And he has this, like, full of strange and interesting stories. And that's exactly how these guys are talking about. This is going to make an interesting story, (laughs) right? And yet... They are living in a time of colonialism where what are they what are is never explained in the story. We have to infer that they're on a hunting expedition. They have bearers, they have guns, right? Is it just to defend themselves against lions and peacocks? <laughs> Not clear, <laughs> right? Um, we don't know why they're on the trail, but at the bend of this trail where they have the servants make camp, um, they're discussing the philosophy of the, of the servants, and one is ignorant and needs to be disabused of his ignorance. He calls it superstition. Well, it ain't superstition if it's real, is it, Eric? 
Nope, it is not. And I don't think such a wood snake or whatever this thing is exists in Africa. Pretty sure I would have heard about it because I like that sort of thing. But I do huh. think a lot of things that are like uh, superstitions could be better understood uh, as lore and practices, uh, best practices, you know? So the bend of the trail, we are at the bend of the trail, not simply in the path through the jungle, Savannah, as you have it, but we are at a bend of the trail in the relationship between the West and Africa. 100%. That's why there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.